Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. You're listening to a special episode recorded at the URJ Biennial in December of 2019. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast, and I am delighted to welcome Rabbi Noah Satat. Rabbi Satat is the director of the Israel Religious Action Center, known as the IRAC, which is the social justice arm of the Israel Movement for Reform Judaism. She's charged with developing social change strategies in the fields of separation of religion and state, women's rights, and the struggle against racism. Rabbi Satat Noah, welcome. It's great to be here. I want to talk about um, LGBT rights in Israel. A friend of mine uh, who wrote a book about um, gay stories in Israel called Independence Park. I don't know if you know the book. Yes, yes, of course. It's a great book. Yes, it's a great book. Anecdote, well, stories, individualized stories of, um, of gay experiences in Israel. He once gave a presentation at the university where we studied together. And this is in the 90s. And he said, Israel is a Gan Eden for gay rights. And he described it in a very sincere way. And he's a thoughtful, critical person. And I want to know, how do you feel about that statement coming from an accomplished gay published leader in Israel 20 years ago, then and now? I think that that maybe that will be a theme of our conversation that you never speak about one Israel. So I think that certainly there are gay men and maybe other LGBT people for whom Israel is fantastic and very safe and welcoming. And that's one of the realities in in Israel. And it's a big reality, certainly in Tel Aviv and um, the surrounding areas. But uh, if you're talking about Palestinian citizens of Israel, if you're talking about the ultra-Orthodox community, and together that is 40% of the population, that's a whole different story in terms of acceptance, in terms of access to care and, to, in terms, and, and community, in terms of risk, in terms of their ability to live the lives they were meant to live. So, so yeah, I think, I, think that, I think that it's definitely true in some places and it's totally untrue in other oh, places. Right. Okay, help me break down the nuance that is helpful for us to understand um, these, you just enumerated three Israels, so to speak, yeah. uh, the urban uh, metropolitan Tel Aviv, the religious Jewish or the ultra-religious Jewish, depending how you want to call it, and the Arab Israeli. So, so and that's, these are very, very broad strokes in Israel, like in the U.S. there are of course. so many layers. But if we're talking about the LGBT community, that seems to me to be the most, um, uh, the easiest separation. So 21% of the Israeli population is uh, are Palestinians with Israeli citizenship. And also there, there's great diversity between people in the cities and people in rural areas, people who are Christian, people who are Muslim, people who are secular. So there's a, a great diversity. But in general, that's a population that is more conservative in terms of LGBT rights. More conservative than, than the, the cosmopolitan than, Tel Avivians. Than, than the Jewish population in general. In general. And also that has, has been, is being transformed in these years by the leadership of the Palestinian LGBT community. In general, I think that the leadership of the community wants to identify primarily as 
Palestinian and then only secondly as LGBT. So they are in solidarity with the Palestinian struggle. Uh, initially, when I was the head of the LGBT center in Jerusalem, we had we had one community and the Palestinian community chose to form their own organizations. Certainly the ultra-Orthodox community, that's also a very separate community. It's uh, So in Israel, ultra-Orthodox school system is separate, Palestinian school system is separate. So in this, uh, if we're thinking about the ultra-Orthodox community, they have separate schools, they have they forbid access to internet. Uh, they don't have TVs. They have separate radio channels and separate newspapers. So access is very difficult. And actually right now, Iraq is taking a case um, against what is called kosher cell phones. So kosher cell phones are what the ultra-Orthodox community uses, which is fine. And they have limited access to internet and uh, other things. But one of the things that they have is they also block out the ability to call LGBT hotlines and... Um, domestic violence uh, services, uh, hotlines. So there's a huge effort to, for, from the leadership of the, uh, the ultra-Orthodox community to deny any access to LGBT information. And so that, as you can imagine, that's a very um, different life from the life of the rest of the LGBT community in Israel. And we need to remember that there was a murder at the LGBT Pride March in Jerusalem where a 16-year-old was murdered by an ultra-Orthodox man, which is the result of incitement and um, homophobia in the community. If I, if I may, at this juncture in the conversation, I just want to point out um, uh, a really um, eloquent saying, brief statement that I heard from my colleague at the Ibrahim College, which your comment inspired because you referred to the fact that the kosher phones prevent not only LGBT hotlines, but also domestic violence hotlines. And uh, he, he shared this quote with me that um, homophobia is a room in the palace of misogyny. Absolutely. And it's a very eloquent articulation. And, and your example seems to validate, at least as one example. Exactly, exactly. So I didn't mean to interrupt, but please continue now with um, some of your other experiences. Uh, so we were talking about the, LG, the experiences of LGBT people in Israel. So we spoke about the Palestinian experience and the ultra-Orthodox experience. And then just, you know, the orthodox and secular and, and everything in between experience, I think is more open because people have access to internet and can find the community and find each other and find information uh, in a different way. And so they have access, even if the experience in rural Israel is very different than the experience in Tel Aviv, these are not great distances and people can travel and, and have access to the community. So one of the great tools at the disposal of the Iraq, the Israel Religious Action Center, has been um, litigation, has been to take uh, cases that have social weight to court and to change the, the experience of, of the social um, polity in, in Israel. What's on your docket? What's, uh, what's first and foremost on your mind, we've spoken about the kosher phones. On Sukkot, uh, the Supreme Court justices choose the most important cases of the year. So this past Sukkot, they published uh, 28 cases, uh, four of whom were from Iraq. Wonderful. So uh, two of those uh, dealt with um, the disqualification of uh, Jewish supremacists, followers of Meir Kahana, Kahana from running to the Knesset. Explain to us who Mayor Kahana was. Mayor Kahana was, uh, um, he basically developed kind of the Jewish um, racist uh, ideology. 
So he had like a... And he backed it with the violent um, philosophy. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and founded an organization. And he founded an organization called Kahana Chai, which was then outlawed as a terrorist organization. And his students keep founding other organizations that hold a similar... Um, to, to, to find loopholes in the, in the rulings? Yeah. So, you know, one organization is considered a terrorist organization. So you found a similar organization with a different name. Uh, and they keep trying, trying to run for Knesset, and we've been trying to disqualify them for many years, um, both because this is an atrocity, it's a shanda for Jewish values, and because we see that one of the major dangers to democracy is when extreme right ideology filters into the center right, uh, which is happening in Israel, it's happening everywhere around the world. Around the world, yeah. It's very dangerous, and we're trying to block that. Um, so that was uh, one of our major achievements this year. We had two election cycles, so we had two petitions on that. Um, we also had a petition to um, remove uh, segregation signs, gender segregation signs from Beit Shemesh, which is now the capital of religious extremism in Israel. Right. Uh, and we won that case. And another case was the um, an immigration case about uh, women victims of uh, immigrant women who are victims of domestic violence. Those were the four cases that were on the list of the most significant cases in uh, the past year. Um, this year, we're continuing to have a, uh, to hold a case against one of the uh, most racist rabbis in Israel, uh, Rabbi Shmuel Eliyahu. Uh, and I, I like talking about his case because it exemplifies the unique role of Judaism and how it plays in Israeli society. So he, Rabbi Shmuel is a civil servant. He's the chief rabbi of Tzfat, Safed, a beautiful city in the north of Israel. Every Jewish city in Israel has either one or two chief rabbis, and that's a very high ranking in civil service. It's, it's equivalent to a judge. Um, and so this guy from his office in City Hall in Tzfat, he operates a hotline, and you can call that hotline if your neighbor rented an apartment to an Arab. And when you call that hotline, the rabbi will use city resources to track down the neighbor um, and tell them that that's not a good idea, that it risks our daughters, the fabric of our society. And uh, He would give his own uh, very innovative interpretation of Jewish law, saying that it's illegal, uh, against Jewish law, against halakha, to uh, rent apartments to Arabs. And if the neighbor persists and rents their apartment to an Arab, then the rabbi would issue a cherem, an excommunication, so that that person can't go into any of the synagogues in Sfat. So that's an example of how Judaism is manipulated to be a force for racism in Israel. Uh, and we've been trying to get this person fired for a long time. Is the person appointed or elected? Appointed. Um, and uh, it, But it's a lifetime appointment. Oh, it's a, oh, it really is like a judge. Yeah, so uh, we have been working at... Uh, for a long time to get him fired, and now uh, this is an ongoing petition in the Supreme Court that will be continued to will continue to be heard in 2020. Um, also, next year we have a big conversion case that's been in court for 14 years, and we're hoping that there will be a decision this year. Uh, since the 90s, conversions that have been performed outside of Israel are uh, accepted for the law of return, meaning. If you convert somebody, 
uh, here, uh, you with your Beitin, convert somebody here in Chicago or in Los Angeles, they qualify to make Aliyah. But if I convert them in Tel Aviv, then they don't get that same status. So that's the case that's been in court for many years now, and we're hoping, we're very optimistic about the result, and we're hoping that there's, there will be a decision this year. Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars. Unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. So I'd like to ask your opinion about um, the rule of law. Uh, In my circle of friends and conversations... This is something that comes up, our concern about the rule of law, and there are two reasons why we're concerned about it. First and foremost, we're concerned about it in principle and in solidarity with Israel. As caring Zionists, we want to see the rule of law. We, we, we believe in it. But also because rule of law is such a, a, an absolute necessary key ingredient to democracy in the first place, we care about it from the point of view of um, of advocacy because one of the great arguments for supporting the state of Israel is its democratic standing um, in general and certainly in that region. And so for Israel to have to fight for its own status of rule of law is something that we feel very um, invested in. And so I wanted to ask you how you're feeling about these trends that are coming across the pond to us as if undermining the rule of law. So in general, in the world, we're seeing an erosion of democratic practices and democratic norms. Um, and that's not new in Israel, but it, the, the, the impact is a two-way impact. Uh, so I think that, for instance, the um, impact of the results of the 2016 elections here was felt immediately in Israel and maybe more intensely than here uh, because the U.S. used to play such an important critical role um, in protection of Israeli democracy, and there's no interest in doing that at all under the current administration. That's had a huge impact on the way Israel operates and also on the power of our movement. So in terms of the the um, erosion of democratic principles, it's both the rule of law and um, the importance of truth and the um, extremist ideologies and incitement against minorities. We see that all over the world. We've actually been experiencing it in Israel for for almost two decades now, coming and going, and, and much more so in, in the past uh, Knesset uh, since 2015 and much, much more so since the American elections in 2016. And, you know, I had uh, dinner with the German Commissioner for Human Rights who came to visit Israel. 
And she's a woman, she's a, it's a political position in Germany. And she's a woman who was, you know, in the Philippines and then came to Gaza and to Israel and Palestine and was going to Brazil. And so she's had a lot of knowledge on what's going on. So I asked her, so who, who figured it out? What are the good methods against populism? Why don't we learn from each other? And her response to me was, nobody figured it out. Populism is very strong around the world and we're seeing it get stronger and we haven't, as a progressive camp, we've not yet figured out the right response. I think that the, the first inkling is that it's not enough for the not, non-democratic camp to be bad. We as a progressive camp have to be good. Um, so that's, I think, the first key. Um, and I think that one of the things that we at IRAC are doing and we as the reform movement are doing in general that is that it's not enough to offer a rights-based agenda. We also have to offer an identity. Please elaborate on that. So let me tell you about what, what brought me to be a rabbi. So Great. I was born in Jerusalem to a really secular Israeli family. Like our Shabbat tradition in my household was that my father would go to the non-kosher butcher shop and get bacon. That's what we did on the mornings of Shabbat. Shabbat. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. That was, that was our thing. Uh, and my path to the rabbinate really went through social change work. So I was the head of the LGBT center. Before you were a rabbi. Before I was a rabbi. Um, in Jerusalem, back when we only had one organization. So we had you know, ultra-Orthodox gay men, Palestinian lesbians, everybody that you can imagine in Jerusalem. And I really got to witness how religion can be a destructive force ruining people's lives and how it can be a positive force for liberation. Um, and when I left there, I wanted to look at social justice issues from a broader perspective than the LGBT perspective. Uh, and my background is in, in engineering. And so I joined an organization called MEET, which was founded in MIT in Boston which was an extracurricular program in computer science for Israeli and Palestinian high school students. Um, that was a very interesting learning experience. And the idea was to build a leadership that knew how to work together, Israeli and Palestinian. And one of the major challenges I had there, or one of the major roles I had in the organization, was looking at the reluctance of the Israeli teens to engage with the Palestinian teens. So, this program, like most encounter programs, was built in favor of the Israelis. The Palestinians had to cross checkpoints in order to get there. And while we spoke English, it was held at Hebrew University in a Hebrew-speaking world, which was familiar to the Israelis and alien completely to the Palestinians. And also in computer science, the Israeli education system is really focused on computer science and preparation for computer science. And the Palestinian education system is focused on other things entirely. And despite all that, the Israelis were petrified. And the more I looked into it, and I brought consultants, and I did workshops, and I had conversations with the different students, the more it became apparent to me that the Palestinian students came with a really strong narrative about their national identity and about their religious identity. And the Israeli students who were brilliant, we chose 20 out of 600 applicants. It was a free program from MIT. They couldn't articulate anything about their identity that didn't have to do with the Holocaust. So responses to questions like, what does it mean to be Jewish? Why am I Jewish? Why is it important to have a Jewish state? What are the Jewish values? They had very weak answers and very negative in their nature. 
And I got to see in front of my eyes in these students how people build big walls around themselves when they're not secure on the inside. It's not only about an external threat. If you don't know who you are, it's very hard for you to meet somebody else or have contact with somebody else. Have the confidence to allow yourself to engage fully with exactly. Um, and so that's what led me to Iraq and the reform movement and the rabbinate, where I get to think about how we, as a progressive camp in Israel, develop an identity, a Jewish identity. And, and that led you to the rabbinate. Yes, I needed to... To the Hebrew Union College, I should exactly say. Exactly, that yes, led the, me to the Hebrew Union College where I got to dive deep into my own identity and develop it. Um, yes. I couldn't agree more about your very eloquent illustration of how you have to have a, a robust and positive sense of yourself before you can engage richly and generously with the world around you. I completely get that, and I think most of us would, I would think that there's another dynamic going on, which is the very particular kind of fear that one experiences when you encounter the person who feels oppressed by you. It's a, it's a, it's a very distinctive thing. We see it in, um, in, in stories left and right in the United States about white fear of African-Americans, even though it's African-Americans who suffer tremendous threats routinely. Um, and uh, I don't know if that is part of your story or not, and I want to ask if it is. And if it is, what does that look like in Israel with respect to this um, anxiety that you described about Israeli Jewish students encountering Palestinian students? So I think that the Israeli story is a little more complicated, and, and that also relates to the democratic crisis that is a little more complicated, because one of the things that populist leaders do is that they invent an enemy. Um, and in Israel, we have an enemy. Now, certainly the vast majority of Palestinians and the vast, vast majority of Palestinians who are citizens of Israel are not our enemy. You know, um, we just a few years ago issued a report about um, Palestinian Israelis in the medical industry. So right now, in this moment that I'm speaking to you, there are more Israeli Palestinian citizens who are working in hospitals, saving people's lives, than there ever were Palestinian citizens of Israel since 48 who were involved in terrorist activity. So it's all about how we look at our uh, at our co-citizens. Um, but in terms of Palestinians who live in Palestine, there's definitely also an, a real threat of bombs and, and rockets. And, and so that's interesting to, to ask, but I think that my students didn't perceive themselves as oppressors. I think they perceive themselves as oppressed. My Israeli students. Same for the Palestinians, of course. Um, but I think that in Israel, that dance is more, even more complicated. And it's, it's more complicated because both are true. Right, right. Uh, right, right. <laughs> uh, um, um, so, I mean, both the Israelis are by far the most powerful side. I think that the Israeli education system 
works very hard to disguise that fact from the students. And I think both sides are engaged both in violence and oppression and not in a, an equal way, but in both sides. So take us out of this interview with um, a, a ray of hope, something that's happening in Israel or with the Iraq that really has you energized and, and, and convinced of a, a, a great story. So first of all, I think that we are in a difficult time, but that specifically in Israel, there's so much to do. So much is changing all the time. And it's the people who are there with their bodies like me or with their impact and, and support like Jews in North America who can vote in the WZO elections or support organizations in Israel that promote their values. That will make the ultimate difference. We're in an early stage, so any impact on the trajectory will have a long-term effect. And I'm very excited by the new partnership between Jews and Arabs in Israel. I think we're now at the point where, if we're looking at the leadership of the Arab community and looking at the moderate leadership of the center, that people are leaning towards each other more. And I have great faith that that is the only way out of the democratic crisis um, and out of the long-term right-wing governments that we've had to endure. And I'm very inspired by the leadership that can do that, that can overcome long and painful histories and look at the future. Well, Rabbi Nosatat, thank you for the partnership and your amazing work. It was really a pleasure to speak with you and to learn from you. And I look uh, forward to future conversations. Thank you. Thank you for the work that you do. You've been listening to the College Commons Podcast, produced and edited by Jennifer Howd and brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. For this URJ Biennial series, special thanks to Mark Palavin, the URJ Chief Program Officer and Biennial Director, and Liz Grumbacher, Director of North American Events. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.